I grew up with a black parent and a white parent in the 90s when that was, like, still kind of, I don't know. It felt like even though I think uh, interracial marriage was legalized in 1967, which is still pretty insanely late, it still was pretty not normalized to be a mixed child in the 90s. So it was definitely a unique perspective. I was also born on a military base um, in the Navy. So the military had us move around a lot. So I was born in Tennessee. I have lived in Florida, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, New York, California, and Oregon. I was also raised strict kind of conservatively Christian, leaning further into non-denominational Christian as I got older. My dad felt like he needed to follow this one way of being in order to be uh, accepted or respected. He was a pastor of the church. So there was like a big conglomerate church, and we were like a branch of that church that my dad and his friend had started across the city. And so because he was the pastor of the church, it was like a whole thing. And so that's kind of where he leaned towards until it kind of became like, oh, I'm not happy. And then it kind of leaned leaned away from the conservativeness. Conservatives in general just don't really have black people's opinions in mind or ca- like really care about like their well-being. So I think that became more obvious to him over the time period to like— be more true to himself instead of trying to adhere to what they wanted him to do or wanted how however would make him fit into the world best. I could tell how unhappy he was because he wasn't like that around other people. Like if he was just alone at home with us or, you know, with his family, he was completely different. And it almost made him go into like some sort of split of identity. I think this is something that's very common when a person is somebody who's people-pleasing. It's very, very common to have this identity split. My mom um, had a miscarriage after I was born, and she was told by the doctors that she was never going to have kids again. And so, like I said, we were super conservatively Christian. I was born that way. Like, it was like, when I say conservative, I mean, like, we believed everybody should be Christian. Like, that, that I didn't know as a child that there was other things other than Christianity. And so I had a friend who had a little brother, and I was really, really, I came home one day, I was really, really sad because I was an only child and I wanted a sibling. I was like five watching my friend have this brother that I was just, it was, yeah, you can imagine being a kid and being a little bit jealous of that. I came home and my dad told me, well, if you just pray to Jesus, then you'll get a sibling because you're a good kid. And I just, with this undoubting mind as a child, um, my parent told me it was going to happen and I knew I was a good kid. And so now I have four siblings. When I tell that story, I don't tell that story to tell the power of Jesus. I tell that story to tell the power of your mind and your willpower and the power of a child who can bypass their doubt to make that happen. It's pretty amazing. It's easy to look back on our um, pasts a lot of times and see bad the bad things more than the good things. It's a lot easier to see those things stand out because uh, they're darker and they're heavier. It was interesting growing up um, with my parents splitting up through their formative years. 
and uh, me kind of having to take the reins of their parenting. When I look back at that stuff now and, like, when my parents were, like I said, falling apart and all of that stuff and I was trying to, like, distract my sisters, I'm like, oh, look over here. There's nothing bad happening. It's okay. I feel like I'm just the type of person in general that if I see somebody is hurting, I'm not going to—I can't turn away from that. It was—I was, like, 12 years old around, and it was out of necessity, really. I mean— when I turned 19, I finally did step away, and I was like, hey, this is enough. Like, my mom had another kid, and I was like, okay, like, <laughs> I'm 19. Like, I'm going to go live my life. But um, when I was 12 until that point, I was their parent. When they were at their dad's house, that was a different story. It was definitely not something I was ready for. I think that one of the reasons it's really dangerous to raise your kid with all of these belief systems that are based in unrealistic expectations of human beings. I just didn't have any concept of what the darkness was in the world. And then suddenly things, like, literally within a couple months fell apart, and I didn't know how to handle that because I was unaware of any, like, I just didn't know what anything meant in the world. I don't know how to even describe it. I was so sheltered. I was not allowed to watch Disney movies. I was not allowed to, like, watch regular television. I wasn't—I was homeschooled because I—they were reading Harry Potter in, in English class, <laughs> and that's witchcraft. So I was taken out of school after that. That is the level of, like, unrealistic expectations I had for this world. And so then just being thrown into that suddenly to um, raise these children at 12 years old was pretty intense. The middle of eighth grade is when I started going to the worst inner city school in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. At the time I started going to that school, I didn't even smoke weed. I thought that smoking weed was like as bad as doing heroin. And then just because I was so sheltered and thrown into it so quickly, it was such a culture shock. I was like, okay, let's just like, I don't know, do sleeping pills while I'm at school. When my parents got divorced, it was very much like a very quick split, like, um, of being super, super sheltered to being thrown into the world. I remember lying about um, being a virgin because I was embarrassed um, and then um, just having sex with some random guy because I was like, I just I don't want to be a virgin anymore. I'm so embarrassed. And so, like, you know, that was a little wild, like, getting thrown into that and the, the parties and sneaking out and all this stuff that I had never been exposed to in my life, but then, like, not having a parent there that was doing anything about it or cared, really, to, to try and stop me. When you don't have any guidance to teach you how to get the things you want, you kind of, well, at least this was my experience with it, was to um, have a defense mechanism of, well, I don't want anything then. Like, if I, I can't figure this out, fuck it, I'm not good enough, I'm just going to not do anything then. My parents told me that getting divorced means you're going to hell. So I was like, oh, my God, my parents are going to hell. Like, not only are they getting divorced, like, they promised me they wouldn't do this. Now I look back on that, I'm like, and as an adult, I'm like, that's stupid. Why? <laughs> that didn't mean anything. But as a kid, I was like, well, they broke their promise to me. They don't love me. And I was the reason that they got married in the first place. So I was like, cool, like, all oh, this is my fault. 
I denounced Christianity, like officially. I remember literally the moment it happened because it was so important to me. And then I did psychedelics when I was about 16. And I was like, okay, something is happening here. There's something that made me feel the same way that I felt in church when I did psychedelics. And so that made me kind of move towards like trying to figure out what that was. And it changed my life. It literally changed my entire life. I would not be here, like, in, in this side of the country if it wasn't for that whole, whole thing. Like, I have notebooks full of, like, different things that I've um, learned from taking mushrooms. And I like to use the phrasing that the mushrooms have taught me. Or, like, even weed, even, like, tea, black tea. Like, sometimes when you get real good, like, quality black tea, that's, like... It, it speaks to you as well. So I have like a lot of books filled with stuff that I guess it was mainly my, my focus was more on finding my inner self and what it was that I really wanted. Because at the time it felt like I wanted nothing. I was just a lot like this is not the place where I should be is in, in Cincinnati. Like it is like such a really stressful area that's just a lot of energy a lot of tension between um, racial sides and political sides and, um, you know, being queer is not very accepted there. All of that stuff. So I just didn't feel very comfortable. It didn't feel like my space. I also am autistic, so it was very much like I shouldn't be in that space. I just thought that I was just not normal, a normal person. I just thought I was difficult to get along with just a person that didn't have the same capacities as other people to connect with other people, um, which I still, I still, that's true. I don't have the same capacity as other people to connect with other people, but it's not because of, there's something wrong with me. That's what I, how I felt about it before. I'm very, very convicted in being an uh, advocate for neurodivergency not being an illness. It's not the same thing. Neurodivergency is, is just a b way of being. And a mental illness is when your brain is not working correctly. Like, people just need support. And I think that every person is capable of a level of self-realization and self-actualization that is their best being. And to say that somebody isn't, I think, is super dehumanizing. And so that's one thing that I've been able to come to that I wasn't able to understand then is that then I felt like it was felt like it was a burden. I felt like it was an issue. I felt like it was something that made me bad, ba a bad person. I needed to learn how to fully accommodate other people, and I wasn't deserving of my own accommodation because it was all just, I'm being too much over the top. For a long time, most of the research that we knew about it was on white men, which is great for them, but it expresses differently in women, and especially women of color. And so it looks so different in these other people and it has been misdiagnosed as all these other things for years and years and years. It's very difficult to get diagnosed as an adult and especially even more difficult as a woman and especially even more difficult as a person of color. So I've got like pretty much all the, all the cards against me. I felt like very much I had to just kind of hide, a hide away um, with my few little friends who were also outcast and uh, dream about being in Portland, honestly. We originally were going to Klamath, 
California. Very, very tiny little town next to just like a trailer park. We flew into San Francisco airport. We had like a very, very planned out itinerary because we didn't have any money. The person we had planned to drive up to Klamath with just ghosted us and stopped responding completely. So we ended up having to sleep in the airport for a couple of nights before we found somebody that would take us up to Eureka. We were supposed to be going to, they told us it was a commune. I had never been to this side of the country, period. Just like driving on the cliffs of the side of California, like, it was so scary because it was like hundreds of foot drop and she's just like swerving So we get there and realize that it's not a commune. It's like a very dilapidated trailer. We spent a week cleaning out this whole trailer, like black mold out of their like living room area and all of this stuff, doing the best that we could to try and meet these people halfway, even though they had clearly lied to us. I guess that they wanted to mainly just rob us. It was their plan. We came home one day to our door being completely off the hinges, and they were like, oh, the dog ran into it. It somehow came off the hinges. We're like, okay, you tried to break into the room and steal our stuff. So we made some very obvious, like, um, you know, how you can put something behind a door, and then you'll know if the door was opened type of thing. So we did that, and then they found out that we did that. And so they, they ran, screaming, chasing us out of their trailer park with butcher knives, screaming racial slurs at us. We ended up having to walk up I-5 with our 200 pounds of luggage at dusk, just hoping that somebody was going to come by because we didn't have, we moved here to live in a commune. We didn't have camping equipment. We're just walking up I-5, hoping that we're not going to die that night. And somebody came by. It ended up being more terrifying because this guy drives up to us with Bible verse magnets all over the outside of his car. His car, like, the top of it is covered in mold. He looks like he hasn't taken a shower in months. That's what this guy looked like, dead on. He said that his calling in life was to travel the country trying to help youth who are in danger. And so we went with him, and he ended up saving our fucking lives. Like, legit saved saved our lives. He got, he got us food stamps. He took us up the coast in, like, a complete detour from where he was trying to go. He was going to Idaho. He went the totally opposite direction just to take us up the coast and show us his favorite cities because he is just that awesome. I don't know. It was really, really wonderful. I have never experienced such a, like, juxtaposition of, wow, I'm probably going to die tonight to my whole world just, my whole life just changed. I think that what I really wanted more than anything when I moved out here with moving away from Ohio was to find my own type of art, like artistry. Who am I as an artist? Or am I an artist at all? Because I didn't, I was not even willing to say that about myself until more recently. Um, But I've, I've always wanted so badly to be an artist. I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to Portland. Art to me is like being being an artist, the whole thing, because it's not about just picking one one pace of, oh, I'm going to, like, get really good at painting. It's about, like, pushing yourself out of your box. To me, that's what an artist is. And, and finding what can I, like, 
how can I make this new? How can I make this something that somebody hasn't done before? How can I do something here that is going to cause somebody to feel moved regardless of what the medium is? First, I started mainly with drawing um, because it's super easy. You can do that anywhere. And then I, I graduated from that to painting. I did live painting for a while. So I painted at music festivals um, where like um, electronic music artists were playing. And then because I was at these electronic music festivals, I saw these people on stage and I was like, there's amazing. I want to do that. So now I started doing that. I wanted to start doing music. That's been always kind of my goal. I think I didn't realize that really maybe at first, sometimes we hide our goals from ourselves because we're a little afraid of them. But I think I've always really, really wanted in my heart and soul to be a music artist. And so I started writing um, poems, like spoken word poetry. There's definitely two sides to my art. One, um, which I don't dive into as much and I've been trying to more recently, is the vulnerability of my own, my own difficulty with the world, with feeling isolated emotionally, feeling like a level of imposter syndrome, feeling like um, people around me somehow think that they know who I really am but don't really – for some reason, they like have this blinder to being able to see deeper into my actual, what I want to actually be seen for. I want to be heard in that. And I also want other people to hear that I'm experiencing that so that maybe they don't feel alone if they experience that. And then the other side of my art is like a more spiritual expression where it's kind of maybe just like a finding your inner self kind of thing where there's beauty and suffering, um, a lot of like... You control your moment, um, even if you didn't control your past, and even if you don't control your future, you control your moment. And even if the choices that you've made in your past have not been things that you would agree with doing now, that doesn't mean that they were mistakes. They're still that perfect moment that led you to this moment, which is also still perfect. I've had this overwhelming experience of life where I'm very, very capable of making other people feel comforted and held, but I am incapable of allowing other people to do that for me, or either that or other people are incapable of seeing as deep as I want them to. We kind of hide things from people that we want them to see, like so much, at least I, that's an experience that I've had in life, and I've seen a lot of people experience it as well, like when there are things that we feel scared about ourselves or vulnerable about ourselves in, it's hard for us to allow other people to see them. And I kind of put myself into this space as a promoter in the electronic music industry that, like, I kind of had to play this character where everybody felt like they were my friend because that's my job. It made it impossible for people to see past that. And so that was where a lot of the isolation came from. I think that there's a lot more societal pressure to have that, like, constant social circle that, like, it's not good for even the people who are experiencing it as maybe being good for them. Like, my partner pushes me a lot to get out of my comfort zone and reach out to people and, and have connections and stuff like that. I appreciate him for it, but that's something I talk with him about. He's a great example of it. Like, he goes out of his way a lot for people that, like, I love that he's so compassionate and so kind, but, like, it's detrimental to him. And looking at his situations and trying to put myself in his shoes, I'm like, 
I think that the reason I would behave differently in this situation is because of my autism, and I'm glad. Like, I'm, like, stoked that I wouldn't let this person treat me as a doormat or whatever. You know what I mean? These people have this parasocial relationship with me where they think that this person I'm displaying is real, is who's who I am. It's not that it's not real, but it's not who I am fully. I'm actually the scared child inside of that mascot costume. When all of the people around you consider themselves your friend, but they don't, they don't actually know anything about you. Like, none of those people could tell you even a third of the things that we've talked about. And so that is, like, such an incredibly isolating feeling. Being unable to explain that to anybody, not only because they don't get it, but also because it's my job to make them think that this is real. And I think a lot of artists do that, especially actors, because those people, when you see them do these interviews, those are not these people. Like, they're not always on like this. They don't always just have the perfect thing to say in the perfect moment. Like, that is just a persona they've created. And that's kind of, like, the same way I feel about this character that I've created. And when I'm, like, pushed to go and try and have a connection when it doesn't feel comfortable for me. That doesn't work. I'm just like, that to me, that's not isolation. That's me having discernment that I am not comfortable here. So I'm going to go be where I'm comfortable, which is alone. And that's fine. It's really hard for us to see people that we view as role models as being the same as us. But watching people do that to me and then me going back and seeing how I've done that to other people, I'm like, oh my gosh, every person is just a person, truly.